Hey everyone, and welcome to Let's Pod This. This is Andy Moore, and I'm joined, as I am every week, by Scott Melson. Hello. What's up, man? How are you? I'm well. Scott, we have a special guest today. We are at his office, not in our studio, Attorney General Mike Hunter. Hello, sir. Good morning. How are you today? Well above average. Well, <laughs> excellent. That's not <laughs> That's bad good. for a Wednesday. Yeah. Uh, General Hunter, thank you for taking time to sit down with us today. We wanted to visit with you some about the news of the month, I suppose, about this um, opioid settlement with uh, Purdue Pharmaceuticals. Can you tell us a little bit how this came to be, a little bit of background about the case? So in June, uh, actually June 30th of 2017, we sued uh, Purdue Pharma and a number of other opioid manufacturers and our contention was that they had systematically over the last couple of decades misrepresented in a a very calculated and as far as we were concerned diabolical way the addictive qualities of their opioid analgesics they manufactured tests they manufactured studies they hired KOLs key opinion leaders to travel around the country Uh, they set up uh, storefront groups that uh, presented themselves as as being independent and bona fide with respect to providing people honest broker views of the uh, utility of the drugs. The consequences are tragic. Uh, thousands of lives have been lost to opioid overdoses, uh, prescription opioid overdoses, uh, hundreds of thousands of people are addicted. We, uh, if we're not ground zero here in Oklahoma, we're close. It continues to be a challenge for the state. Uh, we've done, um, Andy, we've done uh, three appropriately important things uh, with regard to policy, uh, litigation, and law enforcement. So from the policy side of things, uh, we've worked with the legislature to enact laws uh, to limit prescribing, uh, to ensure that prescriptions are not easily counterfeited, which is a big problem. That's a lot of divergence of prescription drugs. We've got more law enforcement uh, powers with respect to uh, nasty things like fentanyl. Uh, we've got a good Samaritan law. If you're around somebody who overdoses, uh, you can contact uh, emergency services uh, and the police without exposing yourselves to liability, yourself to liability. Uh, We've got more control over knowing how much uh, is coming into the state uh, with regard to opioids. And on the law enforcement side, you know, our approach is, you know, certainly there's got to be proportionality, proportionality with regard to possession crimes. But if if you're taking the position that you're going to make a living by selling poison to people and people, uh, people end up in the emergency room or worse, on a slab in the morgue, you've committed a violent crime. So those are the, <clears throat> that's sort of the tripartite strategy. Back to the litigation. Uh, we think the state citizens are owed um, billions of dollars for the costs of uh, what these companies are responsible for. And that was the basis, is the basis of our lawsuit. It's down in Cleveland County in Norman. Uh, we've had multiple hearings, we've months of discovery. You know, we've looked at millions of doc, uh, documents conducted. Uh, scores of depositions, and we are ready to go to trial on May 28th. So we've been in court-ordered mediation, uh, negotiations, if you will, with with the companies. 
And as we got closer to trial, uh, one of the real challenging parts of uh, this process, the litigation, has been uh, Purdue is a privately owned company. Uh, bankruptcy is a viable option for them, given all the uh, lawsuits that uh, they're the defendant in, thousands. Um, so our delicate exercise was, can we have some kind of a result, financial result, from Purdue that won't put them in bankruptcy, that will avoid them going into bankruptcy, because their admonition to us when we had discussions was, uh, look, we're serious about bankruptcy. Uh, we don't want to go to trial in Oklahoma. So where, where we ended up was we were able to convince them that an Oklahoma settlement that had national import uh, was something that made sense for the state and for Purdue Pharma. So as those negotiations, which were overseen by a former federal judge, Judge Lane Phillips, uh, who was federal judge here in Oklahoma for a number of years, as things progressed, we really got to a point, again, with the uh, advice and counsel of the mediator, uh, what you've got from Purdue is what you're going to get, and pushing them farther is going to push them into bankruptcy. And just so your listeners understand, bankruptcy means the state's going to get zero, because we don't have any kind of a judgment against Purdue right now. And bankruptcy would have also stayed our proceeding with regard to the other defendants. So it was a real, you know, it was a real challenge. It was high stakes poker, if you will. So where we ended up um, just quickly is uh, establishing the OSU program for wellness and recovery as the national center for addiction science in the country. Uh, we're, uh, we're going to be getting almost $200 million from Purdue and the uh, owners of the company. Um, we, uh, we've already received over $100 million that um, we've got sequestered right now as we set up a foundation that, that's going to support the uh, wellness and recovery program. And then over uh, the next five years, there'll be another $75 million that the owners are going to be paying into the foundation, again, to support the wellness and recovery program. So uh, it, was, it was a challenging, uh, as I said, very delicate um, set of negotiations, but I'm confident where we ended up is the best deal that we could have struck for the state. Sorry for the long answer. No, no, no that's that was, great. Yeah. That was perfect. Um, you know, I guess one thing, could you maybe clarify a little bit? When you talk about there that they're a privately held company and that bankruptcy is a viable option for them, am I right? Because my assumption then must mean if they're a publicly held company that maybe they don't have some of the protections that can come with bankruptcy. Can you talk a little bit about what well, the delineates? complexity, I mean, the complexity when you're publicly traded um, vis-a-vis a privately owned company uh, is dramatic. And so the stakeholders in a bankruptcy, uh, how you deal with your shareholders, uh, how you make the decision, I mean, all that complexity is present with regard to the other defendants in this case. They're publicly traded companies. Purdue, on the other hand, is closely held, uh, privately owned, and their ability, their decision-making around bankruptcy is much less complicated. So it was it was something that we took very seriously. And uh, if I were advising them, and I never would, <laughs> right? <laughs> but if I were advising them, given all the exposure that they've got to litigation, uh, I'd be giving the same advice, that you need to be modeling whether bankruptcy is the best way to handle your liabilities. Sure. And we didn't say this up front, but Scott is a physician, and I'm a licensed mental health professional, and so 
this is a cause that is near and dear to both of our hearts um, in a variety of ways. Uh, and so we've been watching the case very closely, I think, for kind of the duration of it. Good. Um, and so I, something you said that I, I maybe I had missed in the news reports was that the uh, the Center for Addiction Treatment at OSU is being set up as a national like resource, not just for the yeah. state of Oklahoma. So the Oklahoma State uh, Health Sciences Center, led by Casey Schramm, uh, and she's a rock star, just for the record. I want all your listeners to hear that one of the biggest, most important, most promising assets we have on the state is the head of the OSU Health Sciences Center, Dr. Casey Schramm. She made a decision two years ago, a little over two years ago, that uh, she was going to establish this footprint uh, for OSU. And the progress that they've made has just been remarkable. Uh, already received several million dollars in grants the uh, credibility that they've been able to garner just in two years was significant. And as the defendant, Purdue Pharma, did its research um, on the enterprise, uh, their response was, yeah, it is significant. It is taking on national importance. We don't really see anything at a public university that has the same momentum. So it's an opportunity for the state. So writ large, this is an opportunity for us to be number one in something. Yeah. And it's not just going to be helpful to the state as we design a strategy to deal with addiction, to make sure that we've got the best addiction science, we're using the best treatment, uh, the best rehabilitation uh, techniques. That's all critical to how we get this problem solved. And so that expertise, you know, that advice is going to be exported. Uh, around the country because it is, again, it's a footprint that nobody else has filled uh, to the extent that OSU has. And so we, uh, we saw an opportunity, again, to settle on that basis. And it was really cl- it was important to Purdue. In fact, they said in the court hearings, um, Scott and Andy, that they would not have settled were it not for this National Center investment that they identified. And it was, it was the most important motivation for them settling with us so this is something and that just i not being a lawyer i don't know the answer to the answer to this so like they say if we didn't have this settlement we didn't have you know like this center we wouldn't have settled we would have declared bankruptcy if that happens where would the 270 million dollars that they're that they settled for where would that money have gone do you see what i'm saying like because like i guess they I one of the one of the things that maybe is really clear to other non lawyers, but not to me, is like they would have declared bankruptcy because of all the litigation that they're under. But they clearly have a lot of money. <laughs> so, like, what happens to those assets if they hadn't settled and declared bankruptcy? Does that quite, yeah. does that make sense? No, it's a good question, and it, but it, the answer is complicated. <clears throat> so their short term challenge was: we don't want to go to trial in Oklahoma. We don't want to have a televised trial. Mm-hmm. What, th- what they have indicated uh, to third parties is they would like for there to be a global settlement that they are able to uh, facilitate through uh, what's called the multi-district litigation uh, in Cleveland, Ohio. And that's where most of the lawsuits are, have been collected by a federal judge. So giving them time to work at that global settlement uh, was something that was part of their strategy, again, for dealing with the litigation in a holistic way. Oklahoma, 
was a serious impediment to that. We have very strong laws in the state that we are using to advance this case uh, in the area of public nuisance. Um, the the uh, evidence that we're required to put on is that there's a public nuisance, there's been damage, and that these defendants were responsible for it. So the evidentiary um, the evidentiary scheme is actually pretty simple, pretty straightforward. We also have what's called joint and several liability in the state. So we can hold any of the individual defendants liable for 100% of the damages. So the exposure that the company had in Oklahoma was something that they were very seriously assessing and modeling with regard to, again, their larger goal, which is to get a global settlement. And so being the first case out there uh, has been real important to the state thus far. And we were, not to sound cynical uh, or Machiavellian here, we were able to leverage uh, where we are in the trial, um, all the discovery we've done, and that was an important part of the settlement. If we wouldn't have gone through months of discovery, uh, we wouldn't be in a position where they know that we've got a good case mm -hmm. and they know what their exposure was at trial. Mm -hmm. I would imagine there's some degree of like a first mover advantage in this, knowing that there are a number of other states that are um, have also filed suit. And so for us to get out there and um, be a little bit ahead of the other states, has that, has that been advantageous for Oklahoma? Yeah, so on, on behalf of the state, my goal was uh, let's get let's get a – settlement or a judgment in place and let's start deploying funds that are is going to allow the state to begin to deal with the consequences of the epidemic and so it's not it's not been i want to be first it's let's get out there in a way that's aggressive um, let's take this case seriously a lot of states a lot of political subdivisions have filed uh, but they didn't have the energy they didn't have the commitment resolve that we have in the state and i can't say enough about my legal team just a postscript, the two lead counsels in our case, Reggie Witten and Mike Burridge, uh, are, have both lost, lost loved ones uh, to the epidemic. Uh, Reggie lost his son, who's a great football player, injuries, was prescribed opioids, became addicted, and that addiction ultimately took his life. A similar story with Judge Mike Burridge's niece. I became addicted, and it uh, it was something that ultimately took her life as well. So I've got, I've got two great lawyers who are pulling, uh, putting their heart and soul into this case. So it's, it's been an important part of why I think we've been able to make the progress we've had because they're 1,000% committed to holding these defendants accountable. Can you talk, and this is a question that you've discussed at length, especially during your campaign last year. Um, so not to rehash all of that, but for people that are kind of tuning in for the first time, can you discuss a little bit about the decision to seek outside counsel to, to help with the case rather than um, operate solely within the AG's office? Yeah. So, again, good question. When, when we sized this challenge and we looked at these defendants, we looked at the billions of dollars of capacity that they had uh, to defend a lawsuit, you know, not just absorb a settlement or a judgment, but defend the lawsuit. It was important to us to make sure that we had the right level of talent and resources and expertise to advance the state's case against a very formidable army of lawyers that these companies have retained. So I've got around 100 lawyers here, uh, 40 or so investigators, and 30 uh, 
really fine members of our sports staff. And our responsibilities are significant to the state, uh, whether it's being at the Corporation Commission, whether it's being an appellate court, whether it's defending the state against lawsuits, um, investigating investigating Medicaid fraud, um, investigating crime. So if, if I were to have appropriately, proportionately deployed my staff, I would have had about five lawyers working on that. It would have taken almost all of our resources to advance this case in a way that is proportional to how we have advanced it with outside law firms. The other advantage here is that the state is not having to expend any dollars to fund this litigation. And part of the arrangement with the outside firm is they're fronting all the expenses of discovery, uh, all the expenses related to uh, travel and research, uh, court appearances. So at the end of the day, we were able to obtain a settlement that only had upfront cost of 22%. So I think anybody would agree if you look at this as an investment, it's a pretty good return on your investment. I did see an article yesterday, I think I sent it to you, Scott, that struck me as funny. Um, I understand that Glenn Coffey was involved in this former pro tem, right? Or speaker. Yeah, he was a yeah, speaker. Of, he was Secretary of State and pro tem of the Senate, yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the article detailed that when, uh, when Mr. Coffey was in the Senate, he had led the charge on trying to um, changed the law to reduce the amount of money that attorneys could receive from a, a proportional settlement. He mm-hmm. was unsuccessful. <laughs> Years later now, that resulted in him getting like double what he would have got had the law he wanted been passed. He would have only been able to recoup like $2.7 million, but instead he got 5.6. And I just thought that life is always ironic. Like in years later in ways you never expect for that to happen. So I'm sure he was both sad and a little happy that, <laughs> that it worked out that way. Sure. I think it's an important point that you make, Attorney General, that because I, I think one one way that um, this has kind of gotten, you know, things that seem sensational make for good headlines sometimes. Mm-hmm. They um, do, <laughs> and and I think it is Im- important to emphasize that you know this two hundred seventy million dollars, and there's some people saying, well, sixty million of that has gone to outside law firms. Do you have any idea? And if you do, are you allowed to like say? what the like monetary investment on those part of those firms has been like, yes, they're making money for the work that they've done, but they've put a huge dollar amount of resources in terms of, you said discovery, transportation, the fees, et cetera. Like what's been kind of their, yeah. How, like, wh- how much of that is just covering their cost and how much of that is their contingency fee for the case? Well, the, the burn rate, uh, which is the term used to describe the outlays of the firm related to discovery, uh, related to um, the attorneys who are on salary, um, who are working on this case. I mean, the burn rate for that firm for the um, last uh, at least year and a half has been about a million dollars a month collectively. So, again, the expense that is attributable to trying a lawsuit like this um, and dealing with the challenge of you know we've we've probably got i don't know 20 or 25 uh, lawyers that are working on this full-time with the the outside firms Uh, i can guarantee that the number of lawyers deployed among these defendants is well over 100 i was gonna say i've seen a lot of yeah by the way (laughs) yeah so awesome do um so you've received some criticism for 
the settlement in lots of ways. One of those ways being that it's set up through a foundation and um, that foundation, some of the people on the board have some ties to the defendant. Can you speak to how that arrangement all came to be and yeah. why it was set up that way? So the board hasn't been composed. What we've done is <clears throat> in, in order to receive the money, we had to set up an entity and that entity will eventually transform into the foundation. But right now we've just got a bridge entity and Bob Howard, who's a very well-regarded Oklahoma businessman in the state, is a member of the board. Um, Kelly Dyer Fry, who's the publisher of the Oklahoman, um, is a member of the board. Then Dr. Shrum at the Health Sciences Center. So uh, that's just an oversight group that's that's in place to receive the money. Uh, the goal is, and the, the vision is, that you're going to have a foundation of national importance that's got a, a significant uh, state component to it. Um, but that's that's all in the works. Uh, we're probably not going to get final uh, approval from the uh, Department of Treasury uh, for the foundation for a couple of months. So we've got things kind of in a stasis right now as as we're completing the work on the um, on what will ultimately be the foundation. But there's no involvement by anybody directly or indirectly related to Purdue Pharma with regard to the management of these monies either now or going forward. That's okay. part of the settlement. Okay. Was it, I guess maybe the question that I read was why, why do the bridge entity rather than um, give the money, I don't know, into the general revenue fund or something like that. I, I, that's probably the legislature's okay. concern, so, right? So again, um, on the record in uh, the proceeding where a district judge reviewed the settlement and, and the, the proposed consent decree, there was conversation and very direct questions by the judge with regard to the settlement. Uh, why is the settlement structured this way? Uh, Purdue, on the record, said we wanted to invest in a national asset that could be uh, that could allow us to settle with Oklahoma, and we would not have settled with Oklahoma were it not for this national character of the asset in the state. So, as again we to stand back and again kind of look at the challenge we had. The challenge was zero or something creative, again, that would allow Purdue to, in many ways, distinguish the Oklahoma settlement from what they needed to do, what they're going to need to do with the rest of the states. Because mm -hmm. they can say, look, this wasn't an Oklahoma-centric investment. We settled with Oklahoma to create a national asset that's going to benefit the whole country. Mm -hmm. And there's been, you have to start at the right place here. The options weren't what we did in appropriations, right. it was zero and what we ended up doing. Right. Well, I think my perception is the legislature often just wants to make sure that they have purview over all of our money, um, regardless of respect, where it comes from. I respect right. the fact that they have the power of the purse. Yeah. We don't have the complexity, as I've, as I've told Republicans, Democrats, House and Senate members alike. We don't have the complexity with these other defendants that we did with Purdue. And any future settlement is going to be um, deposited, you know, my advice is to create a special fund. And then there's going to need to be uh, parameters around the use of that special fund so that it's earmarked to deal with the epidemic and the damages that have resulted from the epidemic. And that'll be part of the court order. And there's also, I think, uh, there's not really a playbook for this. <laughs> right. And so there are a number of individuals who 
are going to have to have significant authority. You know, this office has a lot of authority with regard to these cases, settlements, uh, initiating cases. The judge in this case, uh, because of our public nuisance laws, has significant power and authority over his decision making. And then that we've we've got, of course, the universe of state policymakers, the legislature and the governor. And so all that, I think, will come together in a much more cohesive, harmonious way with regard to uh, future monies that we get from these defendants. Sure. Sure. When you talk about creating this, you know, the foundation of this entity that has of like national importance, so roughly $200 million total is going to go to that foundation. Is that right? And is there a certain, is there a certain percentage of that 200 million that is like dedicated to go to OSU or will the board be able to disperse those funds however they see fit, or is it more like this is an endowment and the interest that's generated from that endowment will be dispersed by the board? Can you just talk a little bit about how that's kind of envisioned to work? Or maybe a, maybe a better way to say that is, what's the division between the Oklahoma-specific parts of this versus the kind of national implications? Yeah. Well, it's an Oklahoma asset that, as I said, is going to have national significance and national importance. What, uh, what we want is we want for this to be known as the MD Anderson of addiction science. So ensuring that 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 goal is met is going to require us to really kind of follow their model in a lot of ways. So the MD Anderson Center is part of the University of Texas Medical Center, uh, but it has a separate foundation that is sort of a, I don't know, buttress for their other activities. Uh, but that foundation has uh, a billion-dollar endowment now, and that didn't happen overnight. So the the foundation board, uh, once it's composed, and what I propose to the legislature is there really ought to be enabling legislation um, around the establishment of the foundation because there's got to be appropriate um, coordination between the foundation and the state funding of the center. So... I see going forward uh, things uh, coming together in a much crisper way. I mean, this is new and different, but it it is carefully designed, again, to fill what is going to be an important space in how we deal with the epidemic, how we deal with addiction science, whether it's drugs or something else, because there really isn't a program like this around the country. There are programs that teach addiction, but there's not a program that is designed to do the research and develop the science around dealing with addiction. not Again, not just drugs, but dealing with all kinds of addiction. And that, that research, that science that's developed and uh, deployed by the center is going to be critical to the state, uh, but also to the country. And I, again, I see a lot of um, additional funding coming in from uh, from outside of the state and from inside the state. So it's a great opportunity, and it is a new and different idea. And I, as I have said, I understand the raised eyebrows uh, with folks, uh, particularly the uh, state legislators. I've had conversations, but I was there for six years. Uh, as I've told them, I uh, am commiserating with you and empathizing with you, but if uh, if you'll just look at this objectively and not get uh, not get too hyper-focused on the idea that is being advanced, which is not accurate, that I've gone around the legislature. Uh, what, I, what I had to do was, again, 
opt for zero, let them go into bankruptcy and get the trial scuttled or do something creative, which is what I've done. And again, the commitment that I've made to state policymakers is with, with regard to future settlements or judgments, let's get a special fund created and, uh, and work this through the appropriations process. Yeah. Well, Scott and I were talking out in the lobby um, that, that we kind of sympathize with your position in this as well, that um, I, I, you know, I guess a, a simple way to say it is a, a bird in the hand is better than two in the bush. Right. And, and knowing that you had the option of no birds <laughs> um, um, is then makes that one in the hand, all the, all the better. And I think what it sounds like this is going to allow Oklahoma to do is to set up um, I think the the phrase Oklahoma asset is a good phrase because it is something that can be distinctly ours in the state um, that we can that we can tout nationally something that puts us on the map in a good way um, not just for having high rates of addiction but for trying to research um, the science that goes into that and develop preventative methods um, and that there's more to this whole lawsuit against all the companies than just getting money to treat the addiction on the back end, right? Like finding out how to um, understand how addiction occurs, how to how to prevent it in the first place will pay off in the long run uh, in ways that we probably can't even really fathom just yet. Well, I guess the <clears throat> most jarring uh, data point that I've learned all uh, through this process is that there's, there's not precise research, but there's there is a consensus developing that between one out of every four and one out of every five people, whether they know it or not, have a vulnerability to addiction. So it's just their, the physiological makeup of their brain. And there are people who have had opioids prescribed to them, significant numbers of people who haven't developed an addiction. But the idea that these companies knew that there was a significant percentage of people that were going to become addicted. And for these companies to, for those companies to ignore that, that's really the basis of our lawsuit. Mm -hmm. So in a perfect world, uh, we'd figure out how to, first of all, create some kind of assessment to see if you're in that one out of four, one out of five category of people. And that is, uh, that is going to be, that would be an important um, an incredibly important discovery that would be a milestone in addiction science if we could screen people so that you would know going f forward as you you know enter your teenage years and beyond that that this is something that you got to be careful about mm -hmm. and then on the back end we just need to make sure that we're not throwing money at a lot of vendors who are gonna you know maybe create um ventures to, to do treatment. Uh, we need to make sure that everybody is using the best science again and the best treatment uh, to get people well. So that's the footprint that I see the wellness and recovery program filling. Sure. Well, then, you know, with the, with the tobacco settlement and then T-set, there's just because it got set up the way it did as an endowment doesn't mean it's been free from criticism by yeah. lots of people um, for some of the things that they funded. So I'm a couple of questions that, that I've had, um, and this, you know, I know there's um, all kinds of things that you can't comment on when there's ongoing litigation. So if you true, I get, I get that. Um, but if you can, in general terms, does the fact that Purdue settled 
have any impact at all on the likelihood that any of the other defendants would opt to settle as well the remaining defendants in the case um well we think it does and and the again the exposure to joint and several liability i mean the fact that purdue is out of the case uh, if there is a judgment entered and that judgment is you know again our damage model is in the billions of dollars so the, the only relief that uh, these defendants are going to be able to enjoy is that judgment's going to be reduced by 270 million dollars so it in some ways i i don't again i don't want to be uh too cold-blooded here but it really isolates the remaining defendants uh, in a way that they need to be mindful of and employ as as part of their strategy going forward <laughs> sure uh, to use president bush's favorite term <laughs> Is there is there anything to prevent those defendants from saying, okay, we we would also like to settle for two hundred million dollars, um, but we want our settlement to be deposited as part of the Purdue funds in the creation of this uh, foundation? Yeah, so that's not on the table for a variety of reasons. Um, again, the unique circumstances that we dealt with uh, trying to keep Purdue out of bankruptcy. Uh, but trying to obtain a settlement that would benefit the state. Um, those were the considerations considerations that resulted in the contours of that settlement. So going forward, uh, we've got companies here that we think have culpability, demonstrable culpability with regard to the epidemic and, and the misrepresenting of the addictive, addictive qualities of these drugs. So the commitment I've made to the legislature is – any future settlement or judgment is going to be um, deployed with their advice and counsel in a general way to deal with the epidemic. So that's not on the table for the remaining defendants. Sure. Do we have any sense on how long we expect this uh, this case to, to go or when we expect to have any kind of judgment? I know it's hard to predict. Well, uh, we're, the you know, the... The initial gavel will fall on, on May 28th. Uh, we're going to be ready for trial. Uh, we're prepared to try this through the summer. It will be on uh, it will be on TV, which is a good thing. It's important that uh, folks in the state are able to follow the trial and see the evidence that we're putting on. Uh, folks, folks, not just in Oklahoma but around the country, will have the um, opportunity to watch this trial. So where we go from here is as President Kennedy once remarked, let us never negotiate out, of, negotiate out of fear, but let us never fear to negotiate. But we'll continue to, because we're ordered to by the court, engage in mediation with these companies, but we're ready to go to trial. Sure, sure. There was, I don't remember who, might have been News OK. Somebody last week, there was an article that talked about, um, there was a decision to, I think, drop several of the charges, if that's the right term. Um, other like leaving just the public nuisance charges, I think, um, against the remaining defendants. Can you talk at all about what what that means or what significance that has, if any? So, as <clears throat> when you initiate a lawsuit, you you essentially identify all the causes of action that you believe are available to you, based on the due diligence that you've engaged in uh, to frame up the petition to decide whether to sue. And as you as you 
as you advance your discovery, as you take depositions, as you look as doc, as you look at documents, it's not uncommon that you will narrow the issues as you go to trial to the issues that you have the best evidence to support. And as we advanced towards excuse me, as we advanced towards trial, and there began to be a lot of what we view as delay tactics by the defendants, it became clear to us that it was timely to focus on what is our best, strongest cause of action, uh, the cause of action that our evidence incontrovertibly supports, and that's the public nuisance cause of action. So that's designed to do two things. Uh, it avoids, we believe, although there's still, you know, we have a hearing tomorrow, uh, it avoids a lot of the pretrial delay tactics that were occurring with uh, regard to the defendants wanting to get orders from the court, limiting discovery, limiting evidence, limiting witness testimony. It, in effect, avoids all that because public nuisance, a public nuisance uh, case, only involves the judge as the trier of fact. Uh, the law does not require a jury. In fact, it's pretty clear, based on our research, that the judge in the case is the trier of fact. So we were, we were avoiding a lot of what was keeping us from preparing for trial with all the pretrial motions and hearings. We were able to focus on our best cause of action and do that, again, before the judge as opposed to a jury. And, again, the goal here is to win the case. The goal here is to get the best possible settlement. And so that was that's driven all of our decision-making. That's driven all of our approaches to discovery. And, again, it's not unusual for that kind of a decision to be made, but in this high profile of a case, there was certainly a lot of attention to it. So, again, it's it allows us to put um, our best evidence behind our best cause of action. Makes me think of uh, some of the trials against the mob bosses back in the 30s that sh surely most people believe they committed various crimes, but we got them for like tax evasion because that was the one that could stick. And sometimes that's all it takes. Well, right, uh, you know, my extent of my knowledge of the law is mostly from reading John Grisham novels for whatever that's, that's worth, okay. Right? right. So that's but a good uh, place to start. Right. But in the in the firm. Right. Like. They got this like huge conspiracy and they get them on like mail fraud or right, something. Right. Um, you know, I think we were, I mean, there's a whole lot of reasons we really appreciate you sitting down with us today, but I think this has been, it's really been enlightening for me because I consume a lot of news. I read a lot and I try to stay informed, but sometimes there are things and I see this in my profession all the time that it's just like, I mean, the dropping of the charges is a great example, right? You read the story and it's like, well, I mean, why would you do that? It seems like there should be more charges, right? Like more charges would be better because these are really bad people. And it's way more complicated than that, right? Like, and this happens in medicine a lot. You know, you talk with people about symptoms or tests or whatever. And they said, well, I mean, I, you know, I had a guy in my office yesterday that's having chest pain. Like, well, and they're just like a test we can do to figure out what my chest pain is. Like, I mean, if you're having a heart attack, yes. But like <laughs> uh, for the 25 other things that commonly cause chest pain, no, it's not that, it's not that straightforward. And so I think getting to kind of hear this from you about like why why we've made some of these decisions and you know like yeah maybe some you know maybe what the public wants is to see that Purdue Pharma like has a billion dollars of punitive punitive damages assessed against them but that may not be like that's if that's not a possibility that's not a possibility like you have to go with what's in the realm of the possible not just what 
would feel the best. Yeah. Um, General Hunter, before we let you go, I know you've got to get back to work, but um, what, you know, part of our, part of our podcast and our purpose is to help regular everyday Oklahomans understand why things that happen in their government at all levels are important and why mm-hmm. we should be involved. Sure. Um, what in your, in your eyes, what is like a key takeaway from this case uh, and maybe the settlement so far that the, like the one nugget that the public should understand why this is so important? Well, I'm a uh, lifelong Republican, a conservative. I believe in capitalism, supply and demand, market forces. But there are times when businesses do bad things. And this is one of those examples. And I, I don't think it's a good use of time to microanalyze the motivations. But there was clearly a decision made that there was an opportunity to make a lot of money when the healthcare industry decided that pain was going to be a vital sign, the fifth vital sign that physicians needed to address to properly treat their patients. And so there was this stampede to fill that footprint with a magic pill. And imperfectly, and as far as I'm concerned, diabolically, um, drug manufacturers decided that they could create an opioid that would not be addictive just because it had a time release formulation. So I guess my headline here for your listeners is uh, this is a situation and it's my responsibility as attorney general uh, to protect the interests of the public. And in this case, the interests of the public have been seriously uh, undermined and compromised by these companies. Thousands of people have died. And most recently, just so there's a maybe a little bit of a uh, data point or a, con- a better context maybe in the near term, over 3,000 people were admitted to Oklahoma hospitals last year um, as a result of an opioid overdose, a non-fatal opioid overdose. So the OBN numbers indicate that almost 80% of those people um, indicated, and again, the, you know, there was an assessment done in the hospital they wouldn't have been treated properly, that it was attributable to prescription opioids. So we're still dealing with the consequences of this. Uh, there's still over, oversupply. We've come a long way with regard, to over, with, with regard to prescription limits. But the damages to the state are significant, both in lives and also in terms of families that have been impacted. The uh, At the end of the day, our goal in this lawsuit is to hold these companies accountable for what they've done to the people of the state. Sure. If... Uh... Which, you want to ask one more? I was just going to say, if uh, if people kind of moving forward want to know what's happening at the AG's office, what what you're up to, and how it impacts their lives, where can they where can they go? What website do they need to visit? Who should they follow on Twitter or whatever? What's what's the best well, way to know what's happening here? So we have a website and uh, we have social media, and it's important to communicate with your clients. As a lawyer, uh, I have four million clients. <laughs> And so we, we do our best to try to keep people abreast of, uh, of what we're doing, of uh, decisions that we're making about prosecutions, about trials, about working with the legislature. And so I would just invite folks to uh, go to oag.ok.gov, and that'll give you a bird's eye view of what we're working on um, on behalf of Oklahomans. Excellent. General Hunter, thank you so much for your time. 
Thanks, Andy. Thanks, Scott. Appreciate you guys. Thank you.